Welcome to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. It's like coffee with an analyst, or it could be whiskey with an analyst reading a spreadsheet, linking crime events, identifying a series, and getting the latest scoop on association news and training. So please don't beat that analyst and join us as we define the law enforcement analysis profession one episode at a time. Thank you for joining me. I hope many aspects of your life are progressing. My name is Jason Elder, and today our guest has four years of law enforcement analysis experience all with Matthews Police Department in North Carolina. She is an active member locally with both the IACA and IALEA. Among other things, she's here to talk about interning, instructing, and implementing the stratified policing model. She is also one of Charlie Giberti's analysts of tomorrow. Please welcome Amanda Bruner. Amanda, how are we doing? I'm doing well, how are you? I am doing well. So, what was your reaction to being named one of Charlie Giberti's analysts of tomorrow? I was quite surprised. I had no idea that he was going to name me as one of us. Very honored, very excited, and I'm very happy to be here today. All right, excellent. It's funny now. I've interviewed, I think you're the fifth person now from that list that I've interviewed. And I've interviewed three women and two men. And, and it seems like the, the the women are very humbled by it and very like soft spoken about it. And the men were like, "Yeah, that's right." <laughs> it was it's too a very, funny. It's a very different reaction that I've gotten from that question. So, all right. So, just like I asked first with everybody, how did you discover the law enforcement analysis profession? So, I graduated from Michigan State University with a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. But I can remember being asked frequently while I was in school, do you want to be a cop or do you want to be a lawyer? And it seemed like those were the only two options that were available in the field. So I started researching a bit more, and I honestly think that I first heard about the law enforcement analysis profession from my cousin, Scott Basom. He was working as an analyst at the time for the Ohio State Highway Patrol, and I went and shadowed in the office and kind of saw how we took information in, did a bit more digging, and then provided leads to investigators. And he's actually still an analyst, but now he works for the Ohio Lottery. (laughs) That's a switch. Huh. I need to get him on the the show. I would kind of like to hear what he's doing for the lottery. So very good. How how old were you at the time? I would say that I was early 20s, I guess. Okay. It all runs together at this point. I'm not exactly sure. (laughs) Yeah. So right at a college then you work for what is it is it bank of america yeah but before that so while i was kind of working through undergrad and grad school i interned for the michigan state university police department Mm -hmm. i did a crime and intelligence analyst internship under melissa redshaw and she had kind of gave me a lot of freedom to develop my own products assist her with regional case support. We did everything from timelines and link charts all the way up to phone analysis. So that was really just a great practical overview of what I could actually do at an agency. All of that basic knowledge came from her. Yeah. So, and then how did you get that internship? Honestly, I think it was just from a guidance counselor at the university. They, the department had reached out that they were starting the program and we had regular meetings about career goals and what I kind of wanted to do after I graduated. And he mentioned, he said, hey, they sent over this application. Are you interested? And so I applied, interviewed, and then I was an intern for a semester. And then they actually had me become kind of a part-time student analyst um, for the next little while. Yeah. All right. And then, and Michigan State's university is pretty big for those that 
might not know. I mean, how many students or I put it in perspective in terms of either students or the amount of crime or just to give folks an idea. So I think that MSU has about 50,000 students, give or take. I would say that crime is relatively low on campus, primarily kind of property and larceny from the dorms and apartment complex. But a large focus that we had was also on kind of game day prep and big <laughs> events for speakers that were coming to campus and doing kind of a little bit more of the Intel side with the open source research and kind of we developed a command brief on national threats to college campuses, things like that. So it's kind of a little bit of both crime and Intel analysis. Okay, good. That sounds like a really good experience right there in college. So at, at this point in time, did you know that you wanted to become an analyst? Absolutely. I loved that internship, could not get enough of it. And I just wanted to learn more and that was kind of when I started looking for a full-time crime analyst position because I was graduating kind of simultaneously. But I was kind of hoping to move back down south. I'm from the Carolinas. And that is when I found a Intel position with Bank of America and Global Corporate Security. Okay. And then, so what did you do for them? So that was a lot about analyzing information that was coming in from a variety of vendor sources to determine any potential bank impact. And then we had to summarize that information, the financial center that could possibly be impacted, and then develop a product within a specified time frame to be forwarded kind of up into senior leadership. But a large part of what I did while I was there was some of the protests in Hong Kong. Bank of America had a large presence overseas, so we were kind of monitoring some of the police activity at that time. That's that's different, and that's something that I wouldn't even imagine that that's what you would have been doing then. So I guess, what do you think you got out of working that type of work? I think the biggest kind of transferable skill set from that was taking a lot of information very quickly and then trying to put together a concise product. There was kind of guidelines on how many bullets you could have on a product or something like that. And it was about trying to get that information out quickly and to who needed the information. So it was really about tweaking your products for your audience and understanding kind of the needs of the organization. Okay. So so then you leave this position for Matthews PD, correct? Yes. All right. Talk us into the decision process to leave this position to go work for our police department. So although I liked working for the bank, I ultimately was hoping to kind of have a position in the public sector. So I was told about the posting with Matthews Police Department and applied. And so now I am the agency's first crime analyst. Our chief is really kind of progressed the agency forward. And now we have a lot of data-driven approaches to how we do things. Okay, so you're coming in from the, the private sector. You'd worked with the university as an intern. Take us back to when you were first walking into the police department. What was the feelings? Did stuff surprise you? How was it different? How was it the same? So I would say it was quite a challenge, just in the sense that there had never been a crime analysis program before. So when I walked in the door, developing products from scratch, bulletins, crime stats, you name it, it was kind of a blank, which I really enjoyed because that kind of allowed me to kind of explore my creativity in that and work with officers, work with supervisors, detectives on what they needed, what they were looking for, get feedback on stuff as I was producing it. But it was definitely kind of quite a change given that Michigan State University Police Department had an analyst. They had been working with her for several years to then be at an agency that did not have an analyst. But I think that kind of 
as time has gone on, it gets incorporated more into the organization. How did you go about doing it? What I mean is you're starting with a blank slate, so you could literally go in any direction, which it seems like you embraced it. But for a lot of people, that's challenging, right? If you given the, the fact that you can go in literally almost any direction, how did you go about establishing the position? So I think the biggest influence on the position and the job duties came from Drs. Rachel and Roberto Santos. So in 2019, the Matthews Police Department had obtained a grant through the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and then that grant allowed the organization to bring them in to evaluate the agency's ability to implement shackled policing. And then after that review, they provided a series of recommendations, and then the department contracted additionally with them for other training. So kind of within the first several months, I was able to sit down with Rachel and kind of go through her recommendations for products and learn from her. And that was really a great basis for what I could grow and do at the agency. Okay. So let's go over some of those things that you implemented. Yes. So basically, stratified policing is this organizational model for proactive crime reduction and accountability. And the intention is to kind of make the organization fully data-driven and transition from more of a reactive to a proactive approach. So the model distinguishes among different types of problems. So it's broken down into incidents, significant incidents, repeat incidents, patterns, and then problem locations, offenders, and areas. And the goal here is to identify individual addresses, areas, whatever it may be, that are responsible for a disproportionate amount of crime in calls for service. So within this model, there are kind of templates that you can follow, you can tweak, you could do completely different. It's up to the agency where, for example, like repeat incidents, we have a weekly report that identifies some of these addresses that maybe have multiple of the same call type within the last month that maybe have escalated already to an incident or will escalate to an incident. And then we have kind of a template for our pattern bulletins, looking at microtime hotspots, hot products, series, a variety of different classifications. And then you have your problem location, offender and area, which you're kind of developing a presentation that commanders can use to develop their plan of action that kind of gives an overview of several years worth of data from crime, calls for service, arrests, maybe external data sources, everything kind of gets compiled in there. Okay, good. And so I, I had Rachel on the on the show, and it was, it was interesting to talk to her about this. And she's, she wanted to stress that, hey, the model doesn't really interfere with the fact that emergency situations in police are still going to react to 911 calls Absolutely. and emergency calls. Yep. Like, this is a way for almost after the fact, like an after act action report that you sit down and organize the data in such a way to make it actionable. Yes, that by evaluating crime that's reported, the agency is able to adjust and allocate resources more efficiently. So depending upon maybe when you have a lot of vehicle break-ins or where those vehicle break-ins are clustered, you may advise patrol to kind of conduct zone checks and foot patrols in those locations during those specific times. But the model also emphasizes kind of going beyond and looking for some of your longer-term solutions, utilizing the POP guides, working with the community, engaging your stakeholders, and trying to develop some more of those longer-term responses. Mm. So with this model, was there areas or programs, or you mentioned templates, 
that were easier to implement than others? I would say that we do have a vendor that provides us with some of the templates, but others, for example, the repeat report, I've just developed and, and then the presentations. Again, I'm just doing the analysis in Excel, creating different charts and graphs, maps that go into that presentation. So it doesn't necessarily require anything that the agency has to purchase. You could do all of this in Word and make a bulletin in Word. But then we also did transition over to our intranet platform that has really boosted communication. So the way that the process works is when these various products, regardless of what level it is, they get posted on that intranet site, as well as the name of the supervisor who is now responsible for this problem. And then there is kind of a running blog where as patrol and as CID respond to the problem and problem solve, they communicate back their work within that blog style platform. And so then in real time, the entire agency is able to collaborate, command is able to get in there and comment and provide recommendations. So there's a lot more communication happening. Okay. Hmm. And maybe what, what were some areas that had the most growing pains? What, maybe some areas where you got more, the most pushback from officers? I would say in general, some of it is just a, a mindset where you're kind of progressing from a traditional law enforcement model into kind of this more like the stratified model. You're involving commands more. Um, the intention is not to push problem solving down to that officer level. Officers at agencies across the nation are going call to call to call. Mm -hmm. And this model is about involving supervisors at all levels of your command in the problem solving process, involving those captains, involving the major, involving the lieutenant, and kind of working a little bit more with the community. So I think it's just a little bit of the shift of kind of going from taking the report to kind of also thinking about how do we prevent the next one? Yeah, because I, I do think, you know, there's the problem solving projects that that you hear about. And when I was in Cincinnati, there was a program there, put your junk in the trunk. And it was a public service campaign of encouraging the citizens to put away valuables, because if criminals can't see anything valuable in a car, they're most likely not going to break into it to steal it. It's the cars that they see that has valuables in it or is unlocked that they will most likely break into. And I always thought that is almost a service that almost just fell to the police. And it didn't feel like that would be something that the police should be doing. I mean, I know the police department's goal is to reduce crime. And so that will be an avenue to reduce crime. But it is did seem like it was more of a community outreach effort of the city. That's what a lot of this, you had already mentioned it before, you talked about the stakeholders and, and reaching out to the community or reaching out beyond the police department to help out with some of these issues that it's not just on the police department to do to resolve these issues. Absolutely. So I would say like, for example, we've had supervisors and commanders work with some of our retail establishments and big box stores to kind of do some stepped assessments and identify security issues. And what they will do is they'll take the analysis that I'm providing in regards to hot products and they'll go out there and make recommendations of, can we remove this product from the shelf and replace it with a QR code? Can we spider wrap these products? Can we move these to a different part of the store rather than being at the front doors. Things that, that like that that go beyond just the traditional foot patrol, the zone check. But at the same time, you're, you're working on these longer-term responses, 
but then you also still have your traditional enforcement component of maybe doing an undercover operation or whatever it may be. And how receptive are these companies to the recommendations that you're giving? I would say that it somewhat varies from one business to the next. Mm -hmm. I think that obviously there are corporate policies that kind of are at play. But in general, I would say that we have had several stores and that we've been able to kind of increase those community partnerships with that have taken some of these recommendations. And then in turn, we have seen some reductions at those specific locations. For those that may not be fully aware of the stratified policing model or just know very little about it, what would you want to tell them about the stratified policing model? Or maybe another way to put it, is there any misnomers that you want to talk about or is there's little known facts about the model? I think that just in general, kind of emphasizing the point that Dependent on the type of problem and the resources necessary, responsibility is designated across the rank structure and that most agencies have traditional policies and procedures about how they respond to calls for service, how they write reports, how detectives investigate crime. But not every agency has a policy for crime reduction and implementation of crime analysis within the organization. And I think that's interesting concept. And that's another thing that Rachel stressed is the idea that problem solving, crime analysis, intelligence analysis at a police department needs to be part of the standard operating procedure for that department. And it's, I don't believe it is in a lot of, of police departments. So you'll get a situation where the position can be very fluid in that uh, you get a new chief or a new set of supervisors or middle executives, and the whole way of doing analysis can change. And what Rachel stressed is regardless of police chief or middle management or direct supervisor, the, the way analysis is done should remain the same and shouldn't be so fluid. And so I find that concept interesting in that obviously with you and Matthews implementing this model, you actually have a procedure for crime analysis and is it strategic analysis? Yes, yep, you have both your tactical, your strategic, we've got administrative crime analysis involved with some of the evaluation, but a lot of it all rests on accountability. And the model is incorporating meetings to review progress of the crime reduction responses and then evaluate the success. So it's always kind of like you're mentioning, it's always a fluid process of what are we doing that's working? What are we doing that we could do better? And how do we kind of continue to move toward proactive crime reduction? Yeah. Now that sounds like Comstat. Is that Comstat or is that not Comstat? I would say it is similar to Comstat in ways, um, but I think a lot more of this focuses on the context behind. So it's not just looking at how do we reduce crime overall. We're looking at specific patterns, specific problems that are identified, and then you're kind of going after the one that's responsible for the disproportionate amount of crime or calls for service. You work that until you get it to an acceptable level. You move to the next. It's not just we're going to reduce crime today. This is kind of focusing in on some of those specific problems, specific patterns. Okay. Do you have an example of either a, a problem, an issue, a hot spot, a pattern, whatever it be, be that through this model you've worked through from beginning to end? I would say kind of in the short term, we had a 
lifetime hotspot of several thefts from motor vehicles in an apartment complex and a residential neighborhood surrounding. And based upon the time of those reported crimes, I was able to put out a pattern bulletin and they had both responses from both patrol and CID. And they actually were out there during the time specified on the pattern bulletin. And sure enough, the suspect, we didn't know at the time, he comes, he starts breaking into cars. They were able to arrest him and then he confessed to a variety of other offenses. So that's kind of the short term. But then in the long term, there have been, we've had kind of two official problem areas since I've been with the department that are kind of like your multi-month responses, I mean, maybe even a year that the agency is focusing on this area, but really working with other departments with the town, planning and engineering, getting DOT involved, organizing community events, and kind of thinking outside the box. Again, as I mentioned, focusing on those longer term responses. Hmm. So I think that's fascinating because it's multiple level, like you said. Do you have a long-term project that you're currently working on? We are currently working, I believe, two problem locations, but our problem areas have moved more into a monitoring phase. So we haven't necessarily pulled out of them completely. We're still looking at um, some of the offenses and calls and whatnot on a monthly basis, but we're not necessarily as involved as we were at kind of the peak of the project. Okay. Hmm. So then how does it go from active to monitoring? So some of this is kind of explained more within the text that Rachel and Roberto have published. So for example, with the repeat incident report, addresses are remaining on that report until they have no calls for four consecutive weeks. So that report is looking at 28 days worth of data. The pattern products are basically open for response for 14 days. And then we have an additional seven that we're monitoring that it could still be extended. This is all based on the research. And then the problem locations, offenders and areas, that is a little bit more at the discretion of the chief. There is no expectation that we're going to drive crime to zero. It's a matter of what can we can we make a reduction? Can we sustain that reduction? And then can we move on to the next problem without having displacement? Can we even maybe see diffusion of benefits at that point? Okay, good. All right, well, let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about your advice for getting into the field, some of the local associations that you're a part of, and even your master's degree that you received. We're also going to play shit you here in the office, so get your calls in. You're listening to Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Sheila Dorn. Do you want to build your credibility with field personnel? with police officers on the street, get a candy dish, put it on your desk and fill it with good candy. That's your opportunity to talk with people and engage. You can send out a million emails. People might know your name, but they don't really know you until you talk to them face-to-face. And that candy dish is an opportunity to talk with people and really get to know them. Hey there, this is Jessica Ellsmore, and this is your friendly daily reminder to remember why you started. Keep your passion, stay involved, and just remember what got you interested in crime analysis. Welcome back. All right, Amanda, I want to talk a little bit about you getting into the field and get your advice for getting into the field. Because I find I do find it fascinating that not only did you have one internship, you had several internships. Like once you decided in college that this is what you wanted to do, you you pursued it and got your foot in the door. 
And so I want to just talk a little bit about what your advice would be for folks that want to get into the profession but may be struggling. Yeah, my advice for new analysts is honestly just to get involved in a law enforcement agency in whatever capacity, either as a volunteer, an intern, or maybe even a part-time employee. I found that law enforcement is oftentimes a very small world, and a reference from one agency could help you in the hiring process at another. So during the summer after my freshman year of college, that's where I basically got my start. I interned with the Pineville Police Department, and I worked in the records office filing case reports. I created Excel spreadsheets for the administrative sergeant, but then that kind of started the snowball of that internship led to my next internship with the Lansing Police Department, where I was doing ride-alongs with officers and just kind of shadowing different members of the agency. And then those references helped me get selected for an internship with the DEA, where I saw a completely different side of law enforcement. But my biggest thing is just that observing officers on the road, being around a police department, you're getting exposed to the culture, the lingo, policies, procedures. It's more than just crime analysis. You're kind of seeing how these agencies work, understanding the individuals that work there, why they work there, what motivates, and you kind of get a better understanding of the criminal justice field in general. What did you do for the DEA? So the DEA, I worked with kind of like reviewing like T3 transcriptions, identifying some links. We did a little bit with LPRs. I worked a lot with kind of even disposal of property according to the DEA guidelines, hmm. but I sat with their analyst quite a bit and was kind of able to see how he was able to support both the enforcement and diversion sections of the office. Do you have any tips for maybe those that are looking for an internship but are having struggle struggling to find one? I would recommend looking on the IACA webpage. I know that some of those internships get posted there, even on government jobs, but also just reaching out. I'm pretty sure that when I interned at the Pineville Police Department, that was not off of a formal posting. I just emailed one of the commander's email who was listed on their webpage and said, hey, I'm interested in interning at your agency. Do you happen to have an internship program? But just because something is going to be not formally advertised doesn't mean an agency is not willing to work with you and see what they can do. That's a good tip. And that's a, it's a cold call, but it could work yes. out. And that's, yes. that, that is a good, good tip. I agree with you. I've talked a lot on this show about the importance of internships. And I really do think the association, all, all associations with law, dealing with law enforcement analysis should do a better job of helping those that are looking into getting into the field to get internships. Cause I don't think that yep. it is as easy as it should be. And I do think it is a great return on your investment because you, for whatever reason, and you've talked about it a little bit is the fact that folks can see that you worked in the culture of a police department that somehow that certifies you to be okay like once they see like oh this person worked in the police department interned with the police department okay that that's good and then so that little bit whether it's volunteering or interning or doing a job that doesn't even have to do with anything to do with analysis it seems like that it can be a very good icebreaker into the the profession. Absolutely. And I actually, I learned that the Matthews Police Department was going to be posting a crime analyst position from the chief at the Pineville Police Department, where I had started out. He knew that I wanted to be an analyst. He had had breakfast with my current chief, and I was happened to be visiting Pineville, and he said, hey, did you know that the Matthews Police Department's about to be posting this? And I was like, no, but thank you. This is 
wonderful information. So just kind of how those relationships build on each other. Yeah. And as I mentioned before the break, you got a master's of science from Michigan State, law enforcement intelligence and analysis, which which I find fascinating that this field has grown so much that now there are dedicated degrees to this profession, yes. which is fantastic. So just uh, talk a little bit about this program and what you got out of it. Yeah, so the program was really a mix of courses on both crime and intelligence analysis, and it was taught by several working analysts, which made it incredibly practical in nature. Two of my professors included Kathleen Gallagher. She was a co-editor of the IACA text and Sheila Dorn from ILEA. She was my capstone professor. So then what did you get out of the master's degree? I would say just in general, improved research techniques, did a variety of threat assessments, a better understanding of open source resource on the Intel side, and then kind of in the crime analysis side, I mean, learning how to make a pivot table, doing temporal analysis, the basics of a bulletin, the terminology, the history, and all that. It was a really great basis that when you walk out of that program, you could walk into an agency and have a little bit of an understanding of at least where to start. I do hear from time to time folks chiming in on whether a bachelor's degree should be required or whether a master's degree should be required. I don't know where exactly I fall. I, I just feel that when you go for interviews or you're going for a job, you're going to have to convince them that you're the right person. So if yeah. if you do that with experience, if you do that with a degree, if you do that with knowledge or whatever activities that you've done, then so be it. I, I don't know if I would be so be open to the fact of like, oh, you have to have a master's degree or have to have a bachelor's degree, even though I have both of those. I'm not sure if that's yeah. the right choice because you're really looking for the right person for the job, not necessarily the amount of degrees. What do you think about that? I completely agree. I think that a lot of it rests on kind of an experience, like your amount of experience, but also even just your willingness to learn, kind of seeing it in kind of the academic realm. Some of these students come in and they kind of know what it is, but they're just really excited to get started and learn something more. But even if you don't necessarily have a degree in it specifically, I think just some of that desire is also kind of something that those agencies are looking for. All right, good. And you're also a adjunct professor at Radnor, right? And how do you like teaching? Yes, I absolutely love it. So I'm an adjunct professor for Radford University, as well as USC Upstate. For Radford, I teach strategic and administrative crime analysis. This is part of a 21 credit crime analysis minor that was developed by Drs. Rachel Norberto Santos. And then for Upstate, I am, it actually just started this last week. I am teaching foundations of crime analysis this fall, and then I will be teaching strategic crime analysis there in the spring as well. And that is part of a 15 credit crime analysis concentration, or it can be a professional crime analysis certificate program. And that was all developed by Dr. Michelle Covington. And I do kind of just want to give her a little shout out. The grand opening for the Upstate Crime Analysis Center is this September. And the center's goal is basically to educate and increase the visibility of crime analysis and evidence-based policing in the upstate region of South Carolina. And she's basically advocating for more agencies to hire analysts, to grow their crime analysis unit. It's a really great opportunity for students to kind of work with real law enforcement data while still in school through the center. All right, 
Good deal. So if those that are interested in that, we'll make sure that we'll put a link in the show notes for more information. Perfect. All right. So let's move on to some of the local associations that you're a part of. As I mentioned in your intro, you're affiliated with ILEA and IACA, but it's more on the local level. So there's the Carolinas Crime Analysis Association. There's the Virginia Crime Analyst Network, and there's the North Carolina Law Enforcement Planners and Analysis Association. So just to, I find all these local associations very interesting because there's great opportunities to network and to learn more about the profession. And so just to talk a little bit about each one of those associations, your roles and what, what you've gotten out of them. Yes, yeah, so I am actually the treasurer of the Carolinas Crime Analysis Association. Um, the association formed last year. We are now kind of in the throes of becoming a formal regional association for IACA. So I'm also the representative for the Carolinas on that committee. We just hosted the second annual CCAA conference in Winston-Salem in mid-August, and that was a partnership with the North Carolina Gang Investigators Association. We had, I think, about 60 analysts in attendance for our second year. And Annie Mitchell from IACA, she gave kind of one of our keynote speeches, and she talked about building analytical confidence. It was definitely a fan favorite. And then I am the treasurer for the Carolinas chapter of IALEA as well. And that organization just started within the last few months. So we're kind of developing our goals, working with IALEA and what we want it to say on the webpage, opening a bank account, just kind of some of those very beginner steps. Okay. So I think it's interesting that these associations are popping up in North Carolina just recently. I would have just thought that they were would have been there for a while, but they're just getting established now, which is great. Certainly holding meetings and yes. conferences is, is fantastic. I mean, that's is six to 60 people there is that's really good for the second go around. Yeah. And I would say that just within the last few years, the biggest change I've seen in the profession is just the general increase in the number of analysts and the number of agencies that employ an analyst, with, especially in this Metrolina region. Being the first analyst at the Matthews Police Department, Catherine Reimer, she is a Radford grad. She's the first analyst for the Pineville Police Department. I'm seeing other agencies maybe hire a second, a third. And I think that this is really attributed to some of that increased education and awareness of what analysis can do for an agency. And I think that these associations, these organizations, can really be a voice for progressive change. Okay. So is there issues that these associations are trying to help resolve that are maybe specific just to the Carolina, just to the region? I would say that just in general, we have noticed that North Carolina has many more analysts than South Carolina has. So it's kind of just, like I said, a little bit more of the advocacy work with some of those agencies. But I think also not necessarily specific to the Carolinas, but it comes down to training. Our conference was heavy on the training, trying to really discuss specific skills. We had presentations on SQL for crime analysis and Excel and ArcGIS and things like that, as well as just resources for analysts, what different vendors are out there, what programs, what free resources are out there for maybe an agency that can't purchase 
the expensive vendor package. But I think a lot of it does just kind of come down to some of that training, the education, the awareness, and the advocacy. Okay. So what's next for these associations, do you think? So I think the next step for CCAA is to incorporate kind of either a monthly or quarterly webinar series. We've seen several of the other regional associations have very successful programs that they've developed. So I think that would probably be that next step. We did obtain our 501c3. That's kind of opened some doors, kind of getting some donations and funding, changed over our website. But then also, as I mentioned, we will be working through our membership. We're going to become this regional association so members can join both us and IAC at the same time at a discounted rate. All right. And then how about for Amanda Bruner? What's next for Amanda Bruner? Oh, goodness. I don't have an answer for this. <laughs> I don't know. You certainly have enough going me. on. This is the yeah. first time you stopped me today. I would say Charlie Jaberti and I just taught an overview on how to automate crime statistics solely using Microsoft Access and Excel at the IACA conference. It's something that we're very passionate about, and it's a skill that the field really needs. I think that analysts are spending tremendous amounts of time querying data, manually calculating statistics, and with automation, they would be able to devote the same time back into crime analysis and kind of really develop their products more, engage with their audience, liaison with other agencies, but Charlie and I have kind of discussed doing some training or even consulting for departments. So if anyone's listening and you're interested, feel free to let us know. Excellent. And I am obviously a big advocate of automation. And so trying to do as much automation as possible to get to the actual analysis. So that is a very good endeavor that you and Charlie are doing. So best of luck on that. Okay. Thank you. Let's move on to our call-in segment then, shit you here in the office. So the way this works is we have callers on the show and they are going to talk about some crazy stories that they've heard in the office. Hence the name, shit you here in the office. And for our first caller, Marilyn, what is some shit that you heard in the office? So when I was working first on a decade of organized crime in 1980, we had various organized crime groups in our book, one of which was outlaw motorcycle gangs. And one of the attorneys decided that they would prank the editor of the volume by placing road flares in a wastebasket while we were out to lunch and, and lighting them as we, just as we were coming back in. So Mario, the editor, who was a bit of a nervous guy to begin with, saw these and was sure that they were dynamite and that we were all going to be blown up. He freaked out and ran out of the building and was screaming at everyone to leave. It was pretty funny. Man, that reminds me of something that you would have saw on Animal House. <laughs> that just seems so <laughs> out there, too, too crazy to be true. And part of me can wrap my head around the idea of wanting to prank somebody at the office, even though in today's age that might be more dangerous than it's ever been, career-wise. But the fact that you actually lit them in the garbage can takes it to a whole different level as far as I'm concerned because that could have set off the sprinkler system that could have done a whole other things that actually light them was that took it to a whole other level absolutely I see a visit from the fire department in their future yeah of course this was back in the 80s before internet before yes. the, you know I'm sure yes. if they had video of that whole thing and would be able to watch it over and over again and see see actually the reaction that probably more would have came out of that 
Okay. Next on the line is Brian. Brian, what's some shit that you heard in the office? I once heard that the intelligence cycle is just for analysts, even though that the first step is planning and managing the entire effort, which is typically done by sworn personnel. Hmm. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's unfortunate, but I definitely think that this is the reality at many different agencies, and I'm not necessarily shocked. Huh. Yeah, I think it is interesting. I like the intelligence cycle, and it's just similar to what the stratified model is. It's just a way of organizing analysis or organizing decision-making. It doesn't have to be just with analysis. I mean, you could take the intelligence cycle and use it for project planning. It's it's yeah. really applicable to many different situations. And I think people see intelligence cycle and th throw it off and like, oh, that's for that's for Intel analysts. And I think it's yeah. unfortunate that that's the, the attitude towards it. I think it all comes back to that collaboration between both your sworn and civilian employees. That it's not just one side of the house. You're all working together, all a shared goal, goal for the agency. Yeah, agreed. All right, next on the line is Rhea. Rhea, what's some shit that you heard in the office? Hi, Jason. So where our previous office was, was in this main hallway between records, the restrooms, and the break room. And we heard numerous, numerous insane conversations and things. But the best one was a community service aide who was looking at our bulletin board of our bulletins. And she has a history of talking to herself out loud. We overheard her saying, oh, I know who this is. He's at my house. This, who this is was a prolific vehicle burglar auto thief who we've had issues with for numerous, like several weeks at that point. And that was like the second spree of his. So we were trying to figure out where he was. She unknowingly told us where he was and we were able to go scoop him up. But that was probably one of the crazier things I've heard at work. That is unbelievable as well. <laughs> to me, it's one thing to say, oh, I know that person. And to be at the right place at the right time to have anybody even hear that's that's what she said. But the fact that the person was actually at their house at the time is something that is should only be happen in the movies. Absolutely. I'm very curious their relationship, if this was a friend or a family member or why they were there. Yeah, I don't know either because it, it was like, oh, that person's at my house. And it almost seemed like when you say that, that it seems like she had some scenario where that maybe she had a lot of people at her house off and on but it is it is fascinating to me that 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 is, that is that is a crazy shit story right there that's unbelievable that all that and you got the rest out of it and everything else so that's that's a good one all right next on the line is aaron aaron what's some shit that you heard in the office so back when i was at nick nick like fellow supervisor and I, we were interviewing and for an intern position and sort of standard battery of questions. And we said, tell us about a time that you had a challenge with a colleague and how you resolved it. And this girl, she leaned in and she was like, I'm going to have one this week. And we were like, oh, really? Tell us more. And she went on to say, I'm going to confront my supervisor and I know that we're going to have it out. And needless to say, she did not get the position. Now, that's definitely a don't be that analyst as well. <laughs> so don't... Yes, I think that that is a topic off limits for the interview. Oh, man. Sit there and tra there was just an article, I think, on LinkedIn about not trashing your current employer in an interview. And it's fascinating that somebody would have to say that out loud. 
I agree. I agree. So it's, I don't know, but certainly they discovered right away that that person wasn't right for them. All right. Finishing up then, last on the line is Dawn. Dawn, what's some shit that you heard in the office? Yeah, so uh, the stuff I hear in the office is the detective will walk in and say, hey, can you do your magic? Can you check in your crystal ball? Can you do what you do? And I say, sure, what for? And he says, hey, can you check and see if some guy stepped in front of a train and killed himself in India? I said, sure. And the guy owned a local good, Mr. Goodsense. He was Indian, like from India. He had sexually assaulted a girl, one of his employees, and, and, and he knew she reported it. And so he immediately left his family, flew to India, and committed suicide because that was less of a disgrace to his family than getting arrested here. I couldn't figure out if he actually killed himself, but I did figure out he got on the plane, he got off the train, and he never got back on. So I'm guessing. So my first reaction is the phrase, work your magic, reminds me of the IACA bingo that they posted on their social media a while back. And I actually have it hanging in my cubicle at work because that phrase is definitely used on a daily basis. Yeah, it reminds me also too, like we had one officer, I think, give all the analysts frogs because he always thought that they made great leaps with some of their connections. <laughs> and That's hilarious. Yeah, so work your magic. And, you know, you also sometimes you get like, oh, where's your easy button? You know, all of this, you just push yep. one button and it, it all gets taken care of. But it, it, it's so funny because that call at the beginning, you almost thought it was a joke. But then it yes. actually takes a very serious turn in that yeah. it was real and it, it ended up with a suicide. So it's, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's what analysts are asked to do. You just never know what you're going to get yourself into and how you're going to need to know what happened on the other side of the planet. Yep, absolutely. I agree. All right. So that's shit you hear in the office. If you have a crazy story that you want to share, please email us at leapodcasts at gmail.com. All right, Amanda, let's finish up with words to the world. And this is where I give the guests the last word. You can promote any idea that you wish. What are your words to the world? My words for the world are to just find something you're passionate about and then find the job that matches it. And then when you do, advocate for yourself and your work. When you disseminate your analytical products, are they going into the email black hole or is it being used to its fullest potential? Very good. Well, I leave every guest with you've given me just enough to talk bad about you later. But well, I thank do, you for having me on. But I do appreciate you being on the show, Amanda. Thank you so much, and you be safe. Thank you. You as well. Thank you for making it to the end of another episode of Analyst Talk with Jason Elder. You can show your support by sharing this and other episodes found on our website at www.leapodcasts.com. If you have a topic you would like us to cover or have a suggestion for our next guest, please send us an email at leapodcasts at gmail.com. Till next time, analysts, keep talking.